After marking song number 505, as Brother Harold asked us to do, which we will sing at the close of the lesson this morning, certainly we can think about, a, again, a brief announcement, as I have made probably in the last couple of months. The, the new set of puzzles are available in the foyer there, so if you'd like to take one of them, feel free to do that. I believe as we're inching ever closer to the actual Bible Bowl competition, that means there will only be one more puzzle following this one. And it also means our youngsters are rather rapidly approaching the, the day of the actual competition, the 12th of September. Come back if you can at all and be with us tonight. For tonight, we will begin to look at that aspect of the book of John that focuses more carefully on those hours in which our Savior gave his life. I think we'll each be uplifted and encouraged as we think about what the Savior did for us and also the magnitude of God's love for us. So please come back tonight at the 5.30 hour. And if, of course, God expects us to be here, if we do not have other hindrances that would permit us, uh, that would prohibit us from being here, and as we think about that opportunity this morning, we also will look at another text in the book of John. Please turn to the 17th chapter of the book of John as we look at that chapter this morning. I chose to devote an entire lesson to only that one chapter because there are so many touching things in it and so many powerful lessons to be drawn from it. Interestingly enough, as was already commented to me, the title of this lesson, someone said, was perhaps the shortest that, that she had seen at any time used. The title is simply the word one. One. Jesus, it turns out, will use that word six times in this chapter. Let's build our lesson around that thought as we move toward understanding more thoroughly and more interestingly these aspects of this intercessory prayer of our Savior. By way of introduction to the lesson, we might well focus and note how the divinity of Jesus has been shown and seen so wonderfully throughout the course of this book. Is it not said for us in such texts as John 1.14, that indeed in the beginning was the Word. That Word, in fact, not only was with God, He was God. Later in verse 14, He took on the form of flesh and dwelt among us. That Word was the Savior. God did have a Word for the human family. It was em emphasized in the form of all that Christ came to show us, all that He came to reveal to us, and all that He came to display the expectations of God for us. In John 14, 9, it was to Philip that Jesus said, Philip, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. May we never forget the testimony of the actions of the Lord's life, all the things He stood for, the matters that He so wonderfully preached. If we've seen Him, appreciated Him, we have in fact seen what God is. We've seen that what God wishes to reveal to us in the form of Him. This morning we shall gain perhaps another attitude, another perspective on him as we look at the 17th chapter of this book. Let's begin in verse number 1 of chapter 17 and again place our setting for as we appreciate that placement we'll be ready to see the magnitude of what the Lord said in this chapter. Most recently in our study of the book of John, we have noticed that Jesus identified his betrayer to that crowd gathered, which was, of course, the apostles, he identified by handing the piece of bread to Judas's chariot, and the Lord identified this one who would betray him. Following that, Judas, it says, went out quickly, and it was to him, of course, that Jesus had said, Judas, whatsoever thou doest, do quickly. 
the time, you see, was about at hand. The Lord had so often in his ministry said, Mine hour has not yet come. He had told his mother that in John chapter 2 at the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee, but now his hour was nearly here. The time had come for him to offer the, fi the finalitude of the things that would be the will of God for the salvation of the human family. In this very attitude of this prayer that we'll study this morning, we shall find the Lord's mind not directed probably to where we might have thought it would be, but we'll be lifted high as we appreciate the magnitude of His interest and love not only for those apostles, but also for you and for me. As we begin that journey in the opening verses of this chapter, might we now remember that following those events in which the Lord's Supper, as we call it, was instituted, the other events taking place with the gathering, Jesus and the other eleven left, and they proceeded to move toward what you and I would call the Garden of Gethsemane. As they proceeded upon that way, the Lord had many things to share with them during the course of that walking, and apparently perhaps stopped for a little bit along the way to share other things with them. If we're keeping track of the hours of the day, we would have been somewhat close to midnight by this time. You see, many of us might well have already been in our comfortable beds asleep by that hour of the day. Remember, the Passover was kept starting at sundown. That would have been about the 6 o'clock p.m. hour. As the hours after that moved, it of course took some time to observe the Passover, to institute the Lord's Supper, the other events associated with the teaching of chapters 14 to 16. We likely now are certainly late in the evening hours, perhaps close to midnight. We noticed that the next day was going to be an exceedingly tumultuous day. The events of that day from the perspective of hindsight for you and me are truly enormous. But let's study them anew and afresh as we let the events unfold before our very eyes. We shall do that not only in the lesson this morning, we shall do so again in the lesson tonight. We have before us in this chapter this great prayer that Jesus prayed. It is certainly the greatest prayer contained in the Bible. Although there are certainly some wonderful ones. There's Daniel's memorable prayer in Daniel chapter 9. There's Ezra's touching prayer in Ezra, the ninth chapter. Certainly this one stands at the top of the mountain. As we listen to the Savior in the hours before he died, pray not only on those important matters of what rested so terrifically upon his mind, he prayed for those apostles. He prayed in regard to the glorification of God and His name. He prayed that those apostles would be able, though they lived in the world, that they would not be of it. He furthermore not only prayed for them in the here and in the time then, He prayed for all who would believe upon His name. That would, of course, include you and me. On that occasion, in the very shadow of the cross, the Lord remembered you and He remembered me. That alone ought to make this chapter almost breathtaking in its scope. And as we consider some of the specific things that he thought about for you and for me, as well as for those apostles before whom he was then speaking, could we not perhaps be those who would appreciate more directly the great mission of the Savior and what was about to be accomplished? Friend, eternity was not going to be the same following the events of this time. Things would be different for you and for me. A new covenant was about to come into force. 
a new means of dealing with the human family was about to come to pass. The perfect covenant was about soon to be a reality. That should, in fact, bring somewhat a smile to our face, but there are the hours of the cross we must pass through first, the hours leading up to it. The events of that long night are about to, trans are about to, to, to pass before us. With those things said, might we shed some light upon just a few of the things we might, I hope, learn as we look at this chapter. Let's break it into sections, if we would. What things did the Lord first mention in His prayer? And as we take them in order, isn't it interesting that He first glorified God? Here, isn't it amazing that even though the cross was now not but about nine hours into the future, nine hours, that's all, at nine o'clock the next morning, He was going to be nailed to a cross. Now certainly there were a lot of events during that nine hours, and we'll look at some of them tonight. But in nine hours' time, nails will be driven in his hands and into his feet. A crown of thorns, even before then, will be plaited and placed upon his head. For now, though, his first intent was to glorify the name of God. Doesn't that speak volumes about sometimes where you and I find that our mind is not? Isn't it amazing that maybe in prayer sometimes the first thing we think of is, Woe is unto me! Oh, how my lot in life is not ideal. I wish it were different. I don't want things to be the way that they are. I turn the attention to me. And yet here was the Savior who was about to die. And his first and foremost thought was, Father, glorify my name that I might glorify you. Perhaps you and I could be a stronger person spiritually and a stronger person for the very defense of the gospel if we first would think about glorifying the will of God and His name and what He stands for. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't pray for the sicknesses of our life and those we love. Other attitudes in prayer that we find elsewhere tell us that that's important. But our first thought might well take us back to the model prayer of Matthew chapter 6. When the Lord began that prayer, did He not begin it? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first thing in that model prayer, this exemplary prayer that he shared forth to those disciples, this is how you pray, he said. And he began it, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed means to make holy. It means to consecrate. It means to lift high and to reverence the name of God. It's a wonderful thing when you and I can bow our heads in prayer. We've done that several times this morning, haven't we? There, right before we had our Bible classes, also right after the Bible classes, now a prayer during the worship. And in each case, those have been begun with lifting high the name of God. Dear Father in heaven, or our Father, that's a lovely thought and a grand idea. May we always appreciate the need to glorify God's name and to magnify and to exalt all that that name represents and stands for. In Philippians 4 verse 6, the inspired apostle Paul in a peerless way affirmed, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And thus, isn't it also true that as we pray unto our Father, glorifying His name, we should appreciate the notion of thanksgiving 
be thankful for what He has done and continues to do for us. And in many ways, that is well exemplified by what the Savior is about to utter and what He is about to experience. Prayer, you see, is truly a genuine honor. It is not vouchsafed to all of the human family. In fact, do we not read in John 9 verse 31 that God heareth not sinners, but those that have a covenant relationship with Him, those that appreciate the opportunity to call Him Father and lovingly obey His commandments, they have a relationship with Him and are truly able to cry unto Him, Abba, Father, to quote Galatians 4 verses 5 and 6. Those thoughts perhaps lead us naturally to the next point. The understanding of the following idea. It was in regard to these close disciples that Jesus had these words to say in the 17th chapter. Note, if you would, verses 17, 18, and 19. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Notice with me, if you would, here again, that in the very shadow of the events that will take place later that morning, in the very character of the greatness of what the Lord would experience, He was thinking of them. And in regard to them, He prayed unto God, Sanctify them through Thy truth. I wonder what does it mean to sanctify and why might that be significant? Sanctify them, he prayed to the Father. Sanctify them through thy truth. That word sanctify means to make holy, to set apart. If you will, it means in the character of setting apart, it means to set apart for any special service and for any special purpose. There are occasions in the Old Testament when, say, certain objects in that tabernacle were sanctified for the purpose that God intended them for, like that table of showbread. It was sanctified for that purpose. The children of Israel couldn't use that just as a simple dinner table. It was set apart for this specific service in the tabernacle. But that word also has reference to individuals who sometimes were set aside for various purposes, such as the high priest. Today, you and I are, of course, priests in this new kingdom, in the kingdom of God, according to 1 Peter 2, verse 5. Notice that he prayed, Jesus did for those apostles, sanctify them through thy truth. How is one today set apart for God's service? How were they set apart for his service then? Were they set apart because they felt they were? Were they set apart because they somehow perceived a calling that God had provided to them and for them? Not at all. Sanctify them through thy truth, the Lord said. And as if that wasn't explicit enough, he went on to affirm and define what the truth is. Thy word is truth. Jesus, on the very occasion of that time, thus drew attention to how significant and how important the very Word of God was then and certainly continues till today. You and I are thus set apart for the very service of God by heeding the things contained in this Word. This is the truth. 
The lovely character of the truth was thus on the mind of our Savior on the night prior to his death. May we also have an appreciation for the truth. Because you see, you and I also have been set apart for the service of God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16 The attitude of holiness, which means thus consecration, to be set apart. That holiness should be descriptive of you and of me. We read in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Having therefore received these promises, beloved brethren, cleanse your, your spirit and flesh from every defilement, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Perfecting what? Holiness. To the Corinthians, Paul admonished them, Cleanse not only your body, spirit as well, and as you do that, perfect. Make complete the matter of holiness in the fear of God. In Hebrews 12, 14, the inspired Hebrew writer there affirmed again, Follow peace with all men. But notice he said in regard to holiness, in regard to that attribute of life, pursue that. Seek it. The New Testament frequently thus makes reference to that attitude of my life and yours. It's truly a great statement to notice the world often has little appreciation for holiness. Do what you feel like, many would tell us. Do what you want to, many would say. It's your life. Live it the way you want. Many tell us ever so often in articles, radio programs. But notice, there's a higher calling for those that are children of God. And God would desire all to come to know Him by virtue of repentance and obedience. There's a matter of holiness. The children of Israel, as a clear example, were to be separate and distinct from the nations round about them. They were not to deal with them. They were not to live like them. They were to uphold the character of God and His holiness in their life. And in pattern, not much has changed. You and I are thus to be distinct from the world, which, by the way, does lead us so majestically to the next point in the lesson. After we've looked at the sanctification and the matter by which it's accomplished, let's discuss the remainder of that in light of the third point in our lesson. Jesus stated rather clearly something that perhaps would be a perplexing thought to some, but I think not to us. For you might notice that he put it in language like this, verses 14 and 15 of John chapter 17. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. The Lord had affirmed in regard to these apostles, He knew that the task that rested before them in the days ahead was going to be challenging. It was going to be difficult. He was not going to be here. He will ascend to the Father in not too many days now. In fact, some 53 days He will be gone. They are going to carry on the work of the church. They will be the initial foundation stones in regard to setting forth the chief cornerstone's ideas. They're going to need to be strong. They will need to be unwavering. They will need to be steadfast, dedicated, devoted, ardent, and true. Jesus said, I pray not that thou would take them out of the world. I pray that they'll not be of the world. 
their calling and their mission, their direction, their guidance, their goal and their objective in life was higher than merely things of a physical character. Their mission was of heaven. Their mission was of God. Their mission was of eternity. They would need to appreciate that they were not thus in, in terms of being those of the world. What kind of thoughts does that challenge us with today? You and I live in the world like they did. Should our calling and should our, should our eyes, in fact, rest above the mundane horizon before us? Should our eyes be lifted to appreciate eternity and all the grandeur of what the church represents, what the meaning of eternal life is, and the fact of what the Savior brought to bear? We each would quickly say that that's a true statement, isn't it? A hearty amen. Our eyes, too, should not be totally consumed by that which is about us, but rather appreciate the message of truth, the sanctification brought from it, and the appreciation of the very words of this time. To help us see those points more clearly, look at a few other passages with me, if you would. In Matthew 4.19, as Jesus, in fact, first called those apostles, notice He said, "'Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men.'" Their primary mission was going to be to catch people and save their souls from a devil's hell. And as they would do that, they weren't fishing merely there on the Sea of Galilee. There were more important fish to catch. And those apostles took up the mantle of that mission. And upon their baptism in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, they did in fact preach and promulgate and propagate that gospel. In Acts 1 verse number 8, Jesus, even before He ascended to the Father... He explicitly told them, You'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the world. They did that. By the time we reach the end of the book of Acts, we are in a position to see that the gospel had been preached to every creature under heaven, Colossians 1.23. Oh, how wonderfully they took the seriousness of that mission to become fishers of men. Having been sanctified through the Word, they taught others how to do the same to be sanctified through the wonderful Word of God. In Matthew 19, verses 27 to 30, the Savior on that occasion in speaking to Peter explicitly said to him, Those who have left houses and lands and families for my sake, they will in fact receive in the hereafter far more than they've given up here. Notice again, when those who began to think that we've left all for you, Jesus reminded them, there's an eternity ahead preparation for that we have already seen in the words of John 14 haven't we I go to prepare a place for you he said and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again John 14 verses 2 and 3 those passages only hasten us to consider others such as Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 when Paul addressed the Colossian congregation and attempted to set before them the centerpiece of Jesus, the idea of what it meant to be a Christian, and what that meant in order for daily living. He said, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. You and I each have been risen with Christ if we've been baptized. For the context of the previous chapter in that one, tell us that that's that to which Paul referred. If we've been risen with Christ, seek those things above. Paul wasn't talking about the ceiling. 
he was talking about that above in the next verse, relating to the very nature of heaven, making certain that your calling and election is what it ought to be, Second Peter 1 verse 10. That only helps us to appreciate, doesn't it? The passages that are seen, for instance, in Philippians 1 verse 20. When Paul found himself in a Roman prison, though writing to the congregation in Philippi, he could say that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul even stated a preference. For me, it's better to depart and to be with Christ. Nonetheless, nevertheless, it's more expedient, it's more needful that I remain and to be with you. That was a rather constant refrain of the Apostle Paul, wasn't it? Let's quickly state, we shouldn't in essence be striving to bring about our death, but we should so live in a way that death ought to usher us in to an existence that's better. We should ever be happy when the time comes that our days here are finished, we could depart this life in peace, knowing that we have lived in the comfort and in the character of the Master, and be ready like Paul to proceed to a reward. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, Paul affirmed. In 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 1, listen to the assurance with which Paul could address that congregation. He said, we know that if the earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Paul could speak about the knowledge of another tent, another tabernacle prepared for him in the hereafter, one with which he would thus be able to be with the Lord. Thus, when we contemplate this statement that we live in the world but we shouldn't be of it, that is still a rather pressing need for today, isn't it? And oh, how that all points us to the fact of being one. Being one. That was the title of the lesson this morning. It seems a fitting way to summarize the three points so far, and in fact to extend them. One. Many songs have talked about one. Some songs have asserted that one is a lonely number. Others have affirmed that one is such a unique number, and to that we must agree. If there is truly only one of something, isn't it absolutely unique? There are no duplicates. There are no replicas. If there is only one of something, it is absolutely and totally unique. Six times in this chapter, the Lord employed the word one. I'd like you to notice with me the way in which they appear. First, in verse 11, Jesus said, And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. That was in that context of the chapter with regard to his prayer for those apostles. He prayed, Father, that they would be one even as we are. Notice verse number 20 and 21. This was our reading for the lesson this morning. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And then notice verse 22. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. You'll notice the final occurrence is verse 23. 
I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Oh, the number one. I would ask us as we draw near this last section of our lesson this morning to highlight the word one. It clearly was rather significant for here in the very shadow of the cross, the Lord used it six times in the span of but a few verses. And as he made reference to one, first it was to the apostles that they may be one. We understand that that, of course, would imply not that these physically different human beings should somehow amalgamate into a single human being. That's not what the Lord meant. He meant that they should be united in the message and doctrine, the ideas that they would proclaim. They had one singular message to tell. They'd been sanctified through the truth, and the truth is unique. Thus, with regard to them, they were to be one. Peter wasn't to preach one thing, John something else, James yet something different. They had a singular message to proclaim, and they were to be one in unison in regard to their adherence to the revealed will of heaven. But notice in verses 20 and 21, the Lord turns His attention to you and me. Remember earlier we said the Lord prayed for all that will believe on me through their word. That includes you and it includes me still today. For this revealed word that he gave to the apostles inspired men penned that and now through their word, John 16, 13, we are able to believe on the Master. And thus with regard to us, the Lord still prayed, Father, that they all may be one. He didn't say that some of them should be one. Most of them should be one. The majority of them should be one. He said all of them that they might be one. It is certainly a very touching thing in tragedy to notice how the human family has failed in the application of this prayer of Jesus. The Lord made this prayer for all that would believe upon Him. And He prayed that they would be one, that they'd be united in mission, in doctrine, in worship, in consideration of the revealed truth of God and the things that it teaches, he prayed that they would be one. And yet the human family has fragmented the Lord's cause to the point that in many instances it's now barely discernible. It just simply should not be this way. The Lord never made a denomination. Never. The Word is not found anywhere in the Bible. Rather, in Matthew 16, 18, he said, I will build my church, and friends, that's singular. He built only one body. He didn't build two. He didn't build six. He didn't build 50. He built only one. There's that number one again. And in Ephesians chapter 4, the inspired apostle addressed this oneness from perhaps a different angle, but it's no less significant. He said there is one body, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. One body is the way in which Paul began that statement. The word body refers to the church, according to Colossians 1.18, and according to Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. One body means one church, just as surely as there was one Lord. But that surety also implies one faith. For Paul again said there's one Lord, one faith. 
How many faiths are there? It's not an uncommon question for perhaps a friend, a neighbor, an acquaintance to say, of what faith are you? I think we understand the question the person's asking, but quite frankly, it's a nonsensical question. There is only one. There cannot be any more. We, with a great degree of consideration, should be happy to say the faith established by the greatness of God through the Savior. There is but one faith, just as the same as there's one Lord, just the same as there's one Spirit, and just the same as there's one baptism and one body, there is but one faith. Of course, that one faith is the epitome of the truth that we learned earlier this morning. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We should be so appreciative and eternally grateful that God has revealed the one body and that He has revealed the one to which the Lord referred. He prayed that they all would be one. From the perspective of history, it would appear that at least for a couple of decades, things were able to remain in that state. But by the time we reach near the end of the first century, already schisms and divisions and false doctrines and other things had splintered the nature of the kingdom. And by the time we reach 200 A.D., there were already so many splinters that it was a sadness indeed. This morning, when the Lord prayed that they would be one, today all that I or any gospel preacher would ask anyone is that you become a part of the one that the Christ fashioned, the one that He made. And it's that one spoken of again in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For there He said, you're baptized into what? One body. Friend, when you and I are baptized, or we have the opportunity to witness one, that individual is baptized into the one body of Christ. This morning, as we examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, may we lift high the banner of the gospel and this intercessory prayer that the Lord uttered in John 17. In summary, we have seen the following ideas, as well as the greatness in that prayer. We have seen so clearly and so wonderfully the following points. As you notice, some of the statements to be seen in them. The glorification of God in our prayer life. The understanding, as we've noted, that though we live in the world, we're not to be of it. And that we're sanctified through the Word of God. And finally, the nature of the oneness that the Lord proclaimed. Today, are you a member of that one body? Are you faithfully a member of the cause which the Christ brought forth? If we could be of assistance in bringing that about today, notice we would just be the instruments to assist in your obedience. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of sins. That would in fact make it to the point where Christ would add you to the body. If you have done that, but you have not been faithful, you have perhaps disgraced the cause of Christ. Some of these things today have been failures in your life. Come back to that first love. Christ invites you back to His side where you belong. He, in fact, desires all men to come into the knowledge of the truth and be saved. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4. This morning, if we could pray upon your behalf, we'd be honored to do that as well. We would only ask that you inform us as to what we need to do for this aspect of your salvation. Or if you need prayers of strength, we'd be honored also to oblige in that. But we would again need you to inform us, even as together we stand and sing what needs to take place. <laughs>